Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we are picking up with our, uh, our second episode about time travel as a concept. Time, time travel as it appears, especially in fiction and in the human imagination. Uh, the, the first episode was uh, uh, Time Traveler Zero Part One. Uh, then we had a little break and did another episode. And now we're back with Time Traveler Zero Part Two. Now, I thought this was going to be in 2021, but I guess we – wait, no, we're already in 2021. I, I get all confused about years. I thought it was going to be next year, but uh, – 2022, yeah. Right, yeah, but then um, we ended up shuffling some stuff around. So here we are earlier than we thought. Yeah, yeah. So we were just traveling back and forth uh, between past and future, uh, though within the, the artificial confines of, of our publication schedule. Now, in the last episode, we talked about some of the earliest possible uh, appearances of uh, forms of time travel in uh, mythology and literature, such as in the, the, the Mahabharata and in some, say, Japanese folk tales, where the way you could probably describe the time travel mechanism is something like time dilation. So, uh, for, so for example, the, the story of uh, King Raivata and his daughter uh, Rivati in the in the Sanskrit epics that would you know they travel up to the Brahma realm and they stay there for a few minutes but then they find because time moves differently in the Brahma realm than it does down on earth millions of years have passed and and whoops like the, their entire civilization is gone and and it's on to a different age but i think today we're going to look at a a similar but slightly different mechanism that appears in in the history of uh, uh time travel mythology and literature which is uh sleeping into the future yeah, and this is this is uh, one of the the concepts that's discussed in Paul J. Nahan's book Time Machines, Time Travel and Physics, Metaphysics and Science Fiction, uh which is a book that I, I cited in the first episode and uh we'll continue to to cite from in this. If you uh, if you're looking for a good time travel book that deals with like the concept of time travel but also gets into uh, some of the headier scientific uh, contemplations of the topic, it's a great book to pick up. So uh, Nayan discusses that time travel by dreaming was once a common literary device. And uh, yeah, that it's closely related to this idea of sleeping into the future. The, and, and, and this is something I love because this is something that we can all relate to because we all do it every night. <laughs> Right, mm -hmm. we we lay our head down on the pillow, and you know there might be a little bit of struggle getting the time machine activated. But once the once sleep mode is in place, um, you are able to skip forward in time. Now, depending on you know, how you sleep and the nature of your dreams, uh, you know not every journey is going to be the same. Some of these journeys are uh, a little roundabout. Um, you know, where suddenly we have to uh, you know stop and um, <laughs> to. Uh, to, to, to steal a joke from Mitch Hedberg, we have to what, uh, um, uh, what build a toy plane with our boss or something mm -hmm. uh, before getting to our, our destination. Uh, but fix a go-kart with my landlord. Was that Go-kart with the landlord. Yeah. That was it, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so there might be some distractions on the way, but when you wake up, it will be tomorrow. It will be the next day. It will be the next morning. Though, one thing that's interesting about that is uh, that I think if you ever have the experience of going under general anesthesia and mm -hmm. being able to compare that experience to the normal experience of sleep, at least for me, and I think this is pretty common for others as well, the comparison to anesthesia makes you 
aware that you are sort of semi-conscious of the passage of time during sleep in a way that you're not really for the like the pure, deep unconsciousness of anesthesia, where, I mean, under the drugs, it's just sort of like, you know, you snap your fingers and then you're awake hours later, uh, or at least that that's sort of what I recall. But with, with sleeping... You know, you're not really conscious of the passage of time, but you're you're sort of maybe liminally conscious that something has, is going on. Time is somehow passing. It's not quite as much of a pause and then play as as anesthesia is. Oh, I, I agree absolutely. That's been my experience. Um, I guess when you sleep and when you dream, time gets weird. Yeah, uh, and it may it may feel like it passes very quickly, but when you go under anesthesia. Um, Time just disappears completely. It is like you say, just the like the snap of a finger. Um, uh, so, uh, so yeah, that's something important to keep in mind. But, uh, but, but obviously, you know, people for you know thousands and thousands of years would have been privy to this this weird situation. And maybe it's not even that weird because it does happen every night. Though I, I would argue that the, the world of dreams always offers a little weirdness. Uh, people would be familiar with, with this um, this phenomena. And so we see it play out in various stories. Uh, probably the most famous of these, um, still to this day, is, uh, is going to be Washington Irving's 1819 story, Rip Van Winkle, in which a man sleeps his way 20 years into the future. Now, of course, this, this would become a pretty standard trope of, uh, of, of science fiction, especially when you get into the realm of suspended animation. Uh, this, of course, was uh, parodied in uh, the, the, the long-running um, sci-fi animated series Futurama. Uh, where Fry essentially sleeps into the future uh, via uh, cryogenics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also find it in various other works. Uh, one that Nayan mentions is H.G. Um, H. Wells' uh, When the Sleeper Awakes from 1899, uh, which is it's not one I've read, not one I was familiar with, but this one involves a sleep jaunt from the year 1897 to the year 2100. So you wake up and there are some giant flying machines that look kind of like skeletal butterflies or something. Oh yeah, yeah. There's some wonderful illustrations uh, from this uh, that I was able to look up that I believe were, were part of the the original published story. And yeah, they're black and white. And yeah, there's like they're like enormous structures. There are these flying machines that look like the um, they look kind of like the ornithopters that the Wookies are using in uh, the Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, r- really cool looking stuff. There was also a 1771 tale by L.S. Mercier about an 18th century sleeper who awakes in the 25th century. And uh, I just have to say, I love how so many of these time travel yarns, they're just really jumping out there. You know, they're going, uh, you know, hundreds of years into the future. Uh, I I wonder, uh, again, I think I contemplated this a little bit in our last episode, like, what does it say about a given time period, how far into the future Time, their fictional time travelers are going. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one, one of the things that uh, Nayan points out is that sleeping into the future is uh, quite an old trope and, uh, and might well be the oldest time travel concept in human storytelling. I don't think any of the examples we're looking at would go back farther than the Mahabharata, which uh, did not involve sleeping and was more of the time dilation version. Uh, mm-hmm. But but certainly it, it does go way back. I'm going to cite a uh, an example of sleeping into the future from the ancient world in just a minute here. Well, the one that uh, the Nayan uh, shares is from around 600 CE. Uh, Gregory of Tours told a story titled "The Seven Sleepers of Ephesus," who uh, traveled 372 years via sleep. Whoa. Sometimes known as the Seven Sleepers, this is a medieval tale told about a group of Christian youths who hide in a cave outside of, uh, of the city around 
250 CE in order to escape Roman persecution. And they emerge, uh, I think that the, the exact number of years they sleep varies. I've seen 300, I've seen 372. Uh, but they, they wake up and they find that, the, that everything has changed. The city is now a city of believers. And, um, and, a, and a version of this tale is also found in the Quran. Now, that's interesting because it shows one of the things that time travel uh, is sometimes used to do in literature and, and folktales, which is to uh, to sort of vindicate a, a person's reputation or point of view to, to show sort of like, yep, the future acknowledged they were right. So the, these people go and fall asleep in a cave as a persecuted minority and then come out and their side is finally vindicated and, and has taken over. Yeah, and and I guess on a, on a simpler level, it's it's about using the time travel story to compare the past and the future, or the past and the present, whichever. Compare two points of time and have some a character or characters involved as the bridge between the two that can provide a point of view. Yeah, that's right. So the stories uh, allow a level of perspective that doesn't occur in reality. That you know mm-hmm. that you can see two things that a person in reality can can never see both of two two different ages. Uh, but I found an example I thought was really interesting because it turns out sleeping into the future actually goes back even farther than uh, than the Seven Sleepers of Ephesus. I wanted to talk about a really interesting example I came across in the stories of the first century BCE Jewish scholar and alleged miracle worker named Honi the Circle Maker. Now, uh, I think as best historians can tell, Honi was a real person. This is not like a a purely legendary figure, uh, though I think some of the accounts of his life are obviously probably legendary. But uh, but it seems like this was a real guy. He was a real scholar who lived in the first century BCE. He is not mentioned in the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. He, uh, he lived after the books of the Tanakh were composed. But stories about him are preserved in the, the Talmud, the collection of, uh, of Jewish law and, uh, and commentary known as the Talmud. And he gets his epithet, the circle maker, or sometimes the circle drawer, from the most famous story about his life, which uh, which I will tell now. And I'm summarizing the version that appears in the Babylonian Talmud, which I found in uh, full text English translation with a nice searchable online uh, version uh, called the William Davidson Digital Edition of the Talmud. It's got uh, both English and modern Hebrew side by side, so uh, it looks like a very usable edition. But anyway, the story of the the most famous miracle goes like this. So there's this Jewish scholar named Honi, uh, and he is living in a time of drought. And the people come to him and ask Honi to pray to God that rain might fall. And Honi seems very confident that he's going to get results because he tells the people that they need to go and bring their clay ovens inside because there's about to be so much rain that the clay will dissolve in the downpour. Mm, Yeah, you don't want that to happen. So Honey prays, but no rain comes. And in response, Honey uh, steps it up. So he draws a circle in the dust on the ground, and he stands inside the circle. And then he says, quote, Master of the universe, your children have turned their faces toward me, as I am like a member of your household. Therefore, I take an oath by your great name that I will not move from here until you have mercy upon your children and answer their prayers for rain. And apparently it works because a little sprinkling of rain then begins, but it's a weak rain. So Honey uh, is not satisfied and he prays to God again, saying, quote, (laughs) 
I did not ask for this, but for rain to fill the cisterns, ditches, and caves with enough water to last the entire year. So then the rain picks up and it starts to pour violently, mightily, rushing rain. Uh, and Honey isn't quite happy with this either. So he says, quote, <laughs> I did not ask for this damaging rain either, but for rain of benevolence, blessing, and generosity. I kind of like that he's, uh, he's kind of standing up to the, the Hebraic uh, God in a way that uh, you, know, you don't see in, in various other stories. Uh, certainly you don't see in, say, like the book of Job. <laughs> Right. There's a very different attitude, yeah, with Honey here. And and his sort of almost rudeness with God is uh, is something that does come up in a controversy in the epilogue to the story. But just to quickly finish the story, uh, the narrative uh, says, quote, Subsequently, the rains fell in their standard manner, but continued unabated, filling the city with water until all of the Jews exited the residential areas of Jerusalem and went to the Temple Mount due to the rain. Uh, so he, he he calls for rain and God provides it. But then there's sort of an epilogue where there's like controversy about several things. First of all, the people ask, uh, is it raining too much? Should Honey, should Honey <laughs> pray to God to make it stop now? And they have a back and forth about that. Uh, but then also it's the question is raised, you know, was there kind of something wrong with the way Honey was, was nagging God for rain? Like the text actually, the English translation I was looking at uses the word nag. Uh, mm. But ultimately, the scholars conclude that, you know, Honey's okay because God responded to his pleas without reprimand. And so it, it seems like Honey's relationship with God is good. Well, he was like a member of his household. So, yeah, exactly. They go way back. So that's Honey the Circle Maker. But how it becomes relevant to time travel is there is actually a story of Honey sleeping into the future. Uh, and this story is also from the Babylonian Talmud. It is attributed to a Rabbi Yohanan, and I just want to read it here, and then we can talk about it a bit. Quote, All the days of the life of that righteous man, Honi, he was distressed over the meaning of this verse, a song of ascents. When the Lord brought back those who returned to Zion, we were like those who dream. Psalms 126, 1. He said to himself, is there really a person who can sleep and dream for 70 years? How is it possible to compare the 70-year exile in Babylonia to a dream? One day he was walking along the road when he saw a certain man planting a carob tree. Honey said to him, This tree, after how many years will it bear fruit? The man said to him, It will not produce fruit until 70 years have passed. Honey said to him, is it obvious to you that you will live 70 years that you expect to benefit from this tree? He said to him, That man himself found a world full of carob trees. Just as my ancestors planted for me, I too am planting for my descendants. Okay, so, you know, it takes this tree 70 years to grow, he's, but he's not planting it hoping to reap the fruits himself. I guess these would be mm -hmm. uh, legume pods that grow off of the carob tree. Um, he, you know, he's planting for, for future generations, his, his descendants. Uh, but the story goes on. So it says, Honey sat and ate bread. Sleep overcame him, and he slept. A cliff formed around him, and he disappeared from sight and slept for 70 years. When he awoke, he saw a certain man gathering carobs from that tree. Honey said to him, Are you the one who planted this tree? The man said to him, I am his son's son. Honey said to him, I can learn from this that I have slept for seventy years. And indeed, he saw his donkey had sired several herds during those many years. Honey went home and said to the members of the household, Is the son of Honey the Circle Maker alive? 
They said to him, His son is no longer with us, but his son's son is alive. He said to them, I am Honey the Circle Maker. They did not believe him. They went to the study hall where he heard the sages say about one scholar, his halakot, uh, and I think this word means um, uh, like religious laws or writings uh, of or about religious laws. Uh, his halakot are as enlightening and as clear as in the years of Honi the circle maker. For when Honi would enter the study hall, he would resolve for the sages any difficulty they had. Honi said to them, I am he. But they did not believe him and did not pay him proper respect. Honi became very upset, prayed for mercy, and died. Uh, and then it offers a bit of commentary. Rava said, this explains the folk saying when people say, Either friendship or death, as one who has no friends, is better off dead. Oh, wow. Uh, I thought this was a really interesting story. And uh, so it, there are a bunch of things about it. One is that it ties into a common theme of sleeping into the future, which is the passing away of everything that one cares about in, in the present. So Honey sleeps 70 years into the future, but he's not confronted with, you know, when we think of like, time travel and science fiction going into the future, a lot of it is, it is like people want to see amazing new types of technology or some kind of noticeable progress or, or, you know, or uh, regress, you know, something, some kind of change in the world that is notable. Uh, but, but I don't think Honey really notices any um, change to the scenario of the world. There's nothing to be amazed at. Instead, it's just that the unnoticed passage of time is loss, and life without your friends and family is not worth living. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nice message. Um, yeah, but, but it's interesting, too. Like you say, that the, the world hasn't really changed. There's no indication that technology has changed. Um, and, I, and I guess... For a lot of, of people throughout history, that probably seemed to be the case. I mean, the, right. the, the basic technology you're using and your understanding of the world has not changed. This is just the way things are. These are the tools we have. The things that will change, and you know that they'll change, will be um, you know, the, 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 the lifespans of, of, of human um, activity. You know, that, uh, that people will, will live and die and be born and grow old. And then also, you know, that... Uh, uh, there's a good chance that uh, as as people live and die, so will kings, so will rulers, and so there will be the you know the ebb and flow of dynasties as uh, as well as uh, wars and so forth. Right. Uh, another interesting thing I thought about this is that Honey gets to see his own posthumous reputation as a scholar, which apparently is going mm -hmm. very strong. Like he goes and finds in the study hall that people really appreciate the teachings of him of Honey the Circle Maker, but he he can't really enjoy that uh, that positive reputation now because people don't believe he's really that guy that they respect in principle. It raises an interesting question about uh, what we value in reputation. Like most people want to be uh, want to have a good reputation, want people to like them. But would it be would you be happy to have a good reputation if people didn't recognize you as yourself? If they didn't connect you and your mm -hmm. current body to the bearer of that reputation? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty pretty interesting. I mean, it's it, it makes you think about like legendary people, and uh, indeed, what if you had time travel scenarios where they got to travel into the future, and then they're like, oh yeah, I'm famous, but also that that image of me has grown so and is uh, and is so revered that uh, you know me just standing here, they're not even going to identify me with that person, right? 
Well, so anyway, I think this story would not be as old as the time dilation story in the Mahabharata, but otherwise, I think this may be the oldest time travel story that that I've been able to come across, and it's definitely the oldest sleeping into the future story that I've found. Mm. Now, um, uh, this wouldn't no, this wouldn't be older, but I did uh, I did run across some some interesting uh, additional uh, time weirdness stories here. Um, uh, in between the publication of part one in this series and the recording of part two, uh, a, a listener by the name of Ahmed wrote in. Ahmed has written in before with some interesting content, uh, but this time Ahmed wrote in to um, share a couple of time travel uh, tales related uh, to Islamic tradition. Uh, one of them, uh, and he ends up mentioning the Seven Sleepers. Again, we had not actually recorded this episode yet, so he did not know that Seven, seven Sleepers were coming, uh, but he also shared the following. So I'm going to read from Ahmed's email. Quote, according to Muslim tradition, Muhammad ascends to heaven from Mecca on the back of a winged mount with the angel Gabriel as his guide. There he individually meets with the prophets who came before him, ending with Moses and Abraham. Finally, he has an audience with God who tells him to instruct Muslims to pray 50 times per day. After some back and forth, at the urging of Moses, who says that 50 is far too onerous, Muhammad leaves with the current five-day prayers for Muslims. Notably, many Muslim sources say that when Muhammad returns from this journey, his door is still swinging back and forth, suggesting either a complete stoppage of time or at least a considerable dilation. That is very interesting and plays once again on the idea that, that time passes differently in the heavens or in the realm of, of God or the gods than it does here on earth. That maybe, you know, that, uh, you know, I guess it's uh, similar to the idea that a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Yeah. So the, there's something about the story that was like, okay, this this sounds familiar. I think I've I've read this before, or I've um, I've heard something like this before. So I, I I looked into it a little bit, and then I realized, oh yes, there is a there's a, a, a wonderful creature involved in uh, some of these tellings. Um, and, and again, um, um, Ahmed mentioned that there's a winged mount uh, that uh, that the prophet rides on, and this creature is sometimes described as uh, Al Barak. Um, which means the shining or resplendent one. Um, uh, those those translations were uh, were, were provided uh, by uh, Jorge Luis Borges in his book Imaginary Beings, and Carol Rose, the folklorist, also provides the translation the lightning. So it's kind of a winged centaur in many artist uh, depictions. You can look up images of of this. It's you know sometimes spelled uh, B U R A Q or B O R A K uh, in English. And uh, Rose adds that it is uh, it's generally described as being pure white. Uh, sometimes it's covered with jewels and precious stones that might be of varying colors. Its breath is perfume, and it can understand human speech, but sources on sp- are split on whether the, the, uh, the creature can actually talk itself or if it can just understand. Um, but I, I wanted to read just a bit from um, Borges' book here. Uh, he shares a bit about, uh, about uh, uh, Al-Barak. Quote, One Islamic hadith tells us that as Barak flew upward from the earth, it kicked over a jar filled with water. The prophet was taken up to the seventh heaven where he spoke with each of the patriarchs and angels that reside there, crossed the oneness, and felt a chill that froze his heart when the hand of God patted him on the shoulder. 
The time of men is not the time of God. When he returned to earth, the prophet caught the jar before a single drop of water had spilled out of it. Wow, that, yeah, that's time dilation again. That's amazing. Yep, yep. The door is still swinging back and forth. The jar of water that was dropped has not yet hit the ground. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I, I love this account. And I love that we have a, a, this uh, wonderful, uh, uh, fantastic beast here. Um, by the way, if you pick up a copy of the Book of Imaginary Beings, the, the, the version that's uh, in print right now with illustrations by Peter Siss, uh, Al Barak is on the cover, or a depiction of Al Barak is on the cover. But, but also look up some of the various art, uh, um, uh, arti- artistic ways that this creature has been brought to life in different uh, Islamic cultures, because uh, it's pretty fabulous. Yeah, this illustration is great because it is it's almost like a mix between a Pegasus and a megalithic sculpture. Yeah. Now, another possible example of time travel in old texts um, can be found in the 16th century Ming Dynasty text from China, Journey into the West. Um, and uh, I, I actually had not uh, thought to look here uh, until you mentioned it, Joe. And so I ended up uh, uh, checking it out to see what exactly the Monkey King was up to. Uh, that relates to time travel. Oh, okay. So I think I came across a mention of time travel in the supplement to the journey to the West, but there, but there's time travel in the original as well. Um, yes, both to a certain extent. Okay, so, cool. um, so if you, if you're wondering, yeah, journey into, into the West, uh, Chinese classic, uh, this is a, you know, a, cl- a classic work and it's been adapted many times in many different forms. Uh, and, and it generally concerns the exploits of the Monkey King or Sun Wukong, the, the great sage equal to heaven. Um, so there's, um, uh, and that's, so that's the main work. But yes, there's also this uh, supplemental work, supplement to the journey uh, to the West. And uh, in both cases, the episodes concern the time warping experience of dream. Mm. So in the, in the original, there's basically just a, a section where um, years of training for monkey are compressed by a time trance. Uh, but yeah, when you get into the supplement, that's where things get really interesting. This second work is also known as the Tower of Myriad Mirrors, and it ta- which I think Borges would, would, would surely have loved, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that title. Uh, and it takes this fantastic travelogue style of the original and gives us even more time weirdness. Uh, I was reading about this in an article by Dr. Ai Ching Wang of the University of Liverpool uh, titled uh, Tower of Myriad Mirrors. And so I, I want to read just a quote from this. Quote, in the narrative, upon leaving the flaming mountain, the monkey, uh, uh, i.e. monkey king or Su Wong Kong, is trapped in a hallucinatory world of mirrors evoked by Ching Fish, a monster epitomizing desire and a negative force proportionate to the monkey's innate morality. Though a tower of myriad of mirrors is in disparate identities, the monkey embarks on an array of adventures to various time points, ranging from the immemorial uh, Qin, uh, 221 through 206 BC dynasty, to the Song, uh, 960 AD through 1279 dynasty, that is preceded by the story's setting, i.e. the Tang dynasty, 618 through 907 AD. Upon returning to his own era, the monkey discovers that his master, the priest, defies the abstinence from sex and becomes a general, and the monkey is entangled in a gargantuan war, during which he encounters his own offspring. In the end, the monkey is awakened by the original time traveler and kills the chingfish as the embodiment of desire that entraps his altruism, thereby eliminating the negative traits from his psyche or self. 
Oh, okay. So uh, if this counts as a type of time travel, you might say that it is time travel as a weapon, like a weapon of distraction against the hero of the, of this story. Yeah, yeah. And I guess in this, I mean, in this, it reminds me a lot of um, of the time travel that we see in A Christmas Carol, right? Because it's all within a dream, essentially. It's all within the, the nighttime headspace of a character. Uh, though in the case of, the, of A Christmas Carol, it is... Um, it is being pulled off by a ghost in order to try and save that individual mm-hmm. from damnation. And in, uh, and in this case, it is being orchestrated by a demon in an attempt to, um, to distract and corrupt uh, our, our hero. But so because this novel, the, uh, the, the supplement to the uh, Journey to the West, is written in the future about a previous era, it can have its protagonist, uh, at least in this hallucinatory distraction thing, going through the or looking through these mirrors or going through these mirrors and journeying to times in into the past and future from where he began. Yeah, it, it sounds pretty pretty interesting. Um, uh, again, I, ha- I haven't I haven't read I have not read this work, uh, but I was I was running across some other papers that were talking about. Um, time travel potentially being used in some of the Monkey King films that have come out. And there have been many, again, there have been many Monkey King uh, films and TV shows uh, and adaptations of Journey into the West. So if anyone out there is, uh, has seen a bunch of them, I think I've seen one or two. Uh, I don't remember there being any time travel narratives, but uh, it stands to reason that time travel pops up in some of those adaptations. So uh, if you've seen one that's pretty cool, uh, let us know. I'd love to know about it. Well, I'd at least say that this is also notable for being, um, even though you you could say there's some big caveats on it because it's like a hallucinatory kind of thing. But to the extent that you would consider this time travel, it is one of the earliest examples I can think of we've looked at that involves traveling backward because all of the others we've looked at so far, the time dilation or the sleeping into the future tend to just involve traveling forward relative to the normal uh, rate at which time would pass or at which you would age. Yeah, and it's um, it, it, it's interesting to sort of try and, and 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 figure out like why that is the case, and I uh, the best I can come up with is that is probably what the author is um, uh, is touching on here uh, the the d- dynastic progression, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that like that that history is is important enough that you would want to comment on it through through time travel. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm sure there's more to the story there, but, um, but at any rate, uh, uh, here's, here's the monkey King popping up as a, a, a as one of our, our, our many, um, uh, older time travelers, maybe not time traveler zero, but, uh, but still notable. You know, while we're on the subject of um, Chinese conceptualization of time, uh, this reminds me of an interesting email that we got. So maybe we can uh, we'll do a couple of listener mails within this episode itself, which is actually I think very cool that uh, the the time gap in between part one and two has allowed us to incorporate some listener feedback into part two itself here. But mm-hmm. um, so so this is a message we got from Bjorn. So this is responding to the part of uh, part one of this series where we talked about visualizing time as a type of space, which appears to be extremely common, maybe even universal, or if not, it's nearly universal across languages on Earth, uh, that that we talk about time as if it were a type of space or a dimension of space or a sort of range within space. 
and uh, and then Rob, you and I ended up talking about how uh, how common it is to discuss the future as if it is physically in the space in front of us and the past as if it's uh, physically in the space behind us. Uh, this also appears to uh, be pretty common cross-culturally, but apparently this is not universal and this is uh, really interesting. So Bjorn was passing along some comment from uh, his girlfriend who is from Hong Kong and uh, she apparently says, quote, when you think of the future, you see it as something in front of you, something you are moving towards. The past, on the other hand, is something you have left behind. In Cantonese, so in the Cantonese language, the concepts are reversed. The past is in front of you because these are things which happened and you can now see clearly. The future, on the other hand, is behind your back. You can sense it, but not perceive it with any clarity. Hmm. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if I, I don't know how common or if that's near universal for Cantonese speakers, but I, I would be interested to hear more about that. Uh, and uh, th that that makes its own logical sense in a way. So you would still be conceptualizing time as a type of space, but just flipping the poles with respect to your body. But but certainly, I mean, we were talking about metaphors in the first episode. You know, it's like the the way we talk about time. Uh, and, the, and the way we think about time, like these, these are the things that end up uh, affecting the way we construct our time travel narratives. Well, it makes me wonder, like if this if this is actually more common, or there are there are at least some languages in which it's more common to uh, to build metaphors where the space behind you is the future and the space in front of you is the past. Would that affect how people who speak those languages design? Uh, time machines in science fiction. So are they less likely to be sort of forward facing vehicles like you, you often mm. see in, you know, the, the DeLorean and stuff like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, uh, you know, thinking back to, you know, especially talking, well, talking about this, but also talking about, about dreaming and sleeping. Um, for the most part, we're talking about baseline human experience here, kind of extrapolated into, uh, into the fantastic. Um, but obviously, if you add various other conditions and substances into the mix, uh, time can seem even weirder. I know there's at least one uh, time travel story that uh, Nan mentions, uh, uh, some early work of literature uh, in which somebody's hit on the head. Oh, no, I know, I know what it is. It was, of course, Mark Twain's uh, uh, con Confederate Yankee in King Arthur's Court. I believe the time travel— Yankee. What did I say? Confederate Yankee. Confederate Yankee. <laughs> well, yes. Um, Connecticut Yankee, rather, uh, in, in, uh, in, in uh, King Arthur's Court. Uh, that book, which I, I think I read a long time ago. I've forgotten all of it. But, uh, but I believe time travel is achieved by that character being hit on the back of the head with something. I think he is the foreman in a factory, and one of his workers whacks him on the head with a yes. wrench. <laughs> I think that's right. And then he so, travels back in time. Very good. <laughs> so, but it is a reminder that yes, when you start talking about um, altered, um, uh, you know, altered experiences of the brain, that adds a different dimension to your contemplations of time travel. Um, and you know, this is the case too when you start throwing in various substances. Uh, you know, we did a, a whole series on um, psychedelics a couple of years back, and one of the commonly cited effects there is the altered perception of time. And, uh, you know, we see this in literature as well, as far back as, uh, like, Thomas de Quincey's uh, 1822 Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Oh, yeah. Now, Nayan doesn't spend a lot of time with this. He points out that, quote, smoking marijuana or taking amphetamines and or LSD to achieve a nonlinear hallucinogenic experience of time travel, uh, he says that's sometimes used by writers as a way of uh, exploring the concept of time travel, but it's not something that he set out to explore extensively in the book. 
So I was thinking, well, who who might have talked about psychedelics and time travel? Uh, I was like, oh, I wonder what Terrence McKenna had to say about this. So I started looking around for Terrence McKenna talking about time travel. And the weird thing was, is I ran across an interview with McKenna from 1989, in which he mentions that he is currently reading Nayan's book on time travel. Oh, that's weird. I thought, for some reason, I thought that that Nayan book came out in like 2001. Well, there have been different editions of it. Oh, okay. Yeah, let me see. Okay, first published 93. Okay, okay. Huh, okay. Okay, so it is possible. Good, good, good. Maybe the interview is from 97, not 89. Right, right, yes. And the book would have first come out in 93. Sorry for all the unnecessary time traveling uh, uh, listeners. But uh, at any rate, uh, the, uh, the, the short, the, too late for the short version on this. But basically, I found it amusing that, that uh, McKenna was talking about the very book uh, that I had been reading uh, for this episode. Um, and uh, I don't know, McKenna didn't have a, a lot ex- extra to add, but he did talk a little bit about time travel in some of his talks, mentioning that he liked the idea that you can only travel back as far as the time machine exists. So uh, you can only go back as, as far as like day one of the time machine existing as a time machine. Um, and and uh, you know, he tended to explore it as kind of a fantasy scenario. But he also lays out a scenario in which time travel is more uh, hyperspatial rather than linear. And, uh, and asks, like, what if you push the button on your time machine and it simp- simply made all future events seem to occur at once? Uh, so the time machine would be more like a doorway to eternity rather than a gateway into the future. Oh, so rather than actually transporting you, it just like breaks the person inside's perception of time. Yeah, uh, in a way, you know this. This reminds me of the movie uh, uh, um, uh, Jack Frost that we just uh, recently talked about for Weird House Cinema. Um, in in that, there's that you know that wonderful scene where she uh, where Nastinka begs uh, uh, Ruby Ruby Finger Dawn uh, to reverse itself, like gets the sun to uh, to go back down over the horizon so that she has a little more time to finish her chore by dawn. And uh, and there's a lot there's a lot of fun to be made on Mystery Science Theater riffing on that about oh well you know this is going to bring about tidal waves and global destruction to have the sun suddenly stop uh, and reverse itself or the planet you know reverse itself whichever uh, you know to, just to totally screw up the celestial mechanics of everything um, in, in a way you could you could say well maybe it would be the same thing with the time machine say if you you did somehow create a machine that allowed you to travel in time that allowed you to uh, to, to move around like like this. Well, what if it just wrecked everything? What if it just, uh, mm-hmm. or if it didn't wreck everything, it just like permanently screwed up your human perception of time? Well, th- this is the idea that uh, that we talked about with Daniel Whiteson, where he was saying, you mm-hmm. know, it, it, if you were really trying to think about a machine that would allow you to travel into the past and try to make it work, he says it would make more sense that the machine reverses the flow of time for the entire universe around you than that it does anything for you. And so time continues to pass normally for you, but somehow it, it makes time go backwards for the, for the entire rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> now uh, in, in the book, uh, Nayan goes into greater detail with lots of examples that are, are definitely worth looking up for, for fans of old school time traveler yarns. Uh, but I, I think it's safe to say that you know there there are older ideas and perhaps even you know ancient ideas you know understanding that time passes in weird ways and that there's something particularly human about reflecting on the past, worrying about the future, 
and engaging in patterns of thought and systems of behavior that can connect us to different times and even deliver us to different times, certainly in the, uh, when, we, when we sleep into the future. Now, um, Nayan writes a, a little bit about time machines, of course, and uh, he says the machines enter the scenario because they represent reason and, of course, science, and they indicate the belief that there may be some sort of way to make possible what is, to varying degrees, thought possible, at least under certain circumstances, uh, particularly if you're talking about time travel into the future. Yeah, this is interesting. And, and this brings me back to um, some thoughts that uh, that I was reading and, and listened to in a lecture by a scholar that I mentioned in the previous part, who is a, a, a professor of uh, science fiction studies at uh, Georgia Tech named Lisa Yazik. And, uh, you know, she draws some connections between specific developments in uh, technology and uh, not just technology, technology and transportation infrastructure in the uh, late 19th century that sort of push forward the idea that you could create a time machine. Uh, now, of course, we know that H.G. Wells, The Time Machine, uh, published in 1895, this was a hugely influential work of science fiction that I think would inspire a lot of the time travel stories that came afterward, but it was by no means the first story about time travel. Uh, but one thing you can say is that almost all of the time travel stories before Wells were not really science fiction and that the time travel mechanic was almost always a sort of uh, inexplicable uh, fantasy thing. And it was like the action of, of a God or an angel or some kind of supernatural imposition, or it was some type of time dilation by going to different mm -hmm. planes of existence or something. It, but, but with Wells, you get a time machine, a vehicle that is created by science uh, now, I think it's not even the very first example of that. I want to mention another example I came across that uh, that I think is very funny and it'll, it'll be fun to read a little bit from. But uh, I was watching a lecture by Yazik where she, she mentions a couple of things. One is that before you get to the time machine, um, a number of the time travel stories from the 19th century that involve traveling through time based on some kind of device use not vehicles but clocks. And a classic mm. example here is a story called The Clock That Went Backward by Edward Page Mitchell that was published in 1881. And this is about – this is also kind of a fantasy story. I mean it's not like a clock that was designed to do this by a scientist inventor or something who wanted to travel through time. It's just like there's a weird clock and when you wind it up, people nearby can get sent back in time. But uh, the, the thing that I thought was interesting was that Yazik mentioned, you know, these stories about technological time travel arising in an age of standardization of time measures uh, for, for industry and politics. So in this era of industrialization, coordination of rapid transport through train stations and shipping ports in, in the late 19th century um, – S something happens in people's consciousness that makes them think about time differently. And this maybe helps give rise to the proliferation of time travel stories that would follow. Uh, now I was also reading a short introduction that, uh, that Lisa Yazik wrote to a uh, recent new edition of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. It was the 125th anniversary edition. Uh, so, oh. yeah, I guess that would have been last year, right? It published in 1895, came out in 2020. 
Terrence McKenna read it in 1993. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Okay. It yeah, come more of an inside joke for us. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, but uh, so she writes about how, uh, so the time machine, the novel was published in 1895. Uh, and that was sort of the work that launched HG Wells literary career. He was born in 1866. So I guess he was what only uh, like 29 at the time that it came out mm-hmm. though. The time machine, the novel was actually based on a short story that Wells had written seven years before called, and I love this, the chronic Argonauts. Ooh. Have you read this one, Rob? I have not, no. I have not either. So it's it's sort of, I think, a shorter, earlier version of the time machine where the hero is not so much a hero. He's more of a mad scientist who uh, gets into trouble by creating a time machine and unleashes havoc that goes on for thousands of years. But uh, interesting fact I, I learned from, from uh, Yazik's intro here. Apparently, Wells published this story uh, in his college lit mag. So let this be an inspiration to you college lit mag editors out there. Yeah, yeah, it could be the place where you um, you publish the garbage version of your future hit. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in subsequent years, Wells revised and expanded the short story until it developed into the novel that we know today. Um, and so Wells apparently wrote in later years that he believed there was a rule for writing good science fiction. I'm not sure if I agree with this, but but it's interesting. So he says to have good sci-fi you need to give the story only one fantastical element and then make everything else as grounded, realistic, and human as you possibly can. So how would that apply to the time machine? Well, an example is that in the original short story, The Chronic Argonauts, Wells had the protagonist living in a gothic mansion in the countryside. And so I think the implication here is that it would invite readers to think of other tropes of Gothic literature, the mysterious, the uncanny. Uh, I think the association I would have would be with like Charlotte Bronte and Jane Eyre. Mm-hmm. But in the time machine in the novel version, he, he rewrote it to, uh, to locate the protagonist in a bourgeois neighborhood of London, basically as mundane and uninteresting a setting as he could think of. But you go into this mundane, uh, you know, bourgeois household and here's a time machine. <laughs> it's interesting how you, you don't think about the setting of the time machine being mundane today because it is it is now a, an historical work. Yeah. Uh, so the idea that it's it's set uh, uh, in um, in in uh, this neighborhood of, in London like that's part of its uh, its charm its appeal. Like uh, essentially you have you you have two different elements that are uh, that are foreign to the to the reader or oh, more than two. Uh, but the time machine becomes a novel just full of uh, of strange and wonderful places that are not our own reality. Right. I, I guess the idea today would be like, uh, what if you went into a house, in, like a McMansion in the suburbs and in the subdivision here, and, and yeah. here it is. Here's a time machine. <laughs> now, we've already mentioned that the time machine is by no means the first story to depict time travel, obviously. Uh, if you include time dilation and sleeping into the future, time travel stories can be found here and there well into the ancient past. And even some stories of more direct time travel, such as being delivered documents from the future, I think that's something that happens in uh, a story called Memoirs of the 20th Century, uh, written by Samuel Madden and published in the 18th century. I think this was like 1733. And basically the story is an angel appears from the future and delivers some letters from future people to people living at the time. Yeah, from the years 1997 and 1998. Oof. 
<laughs> and then, of course, you get these 19th century examples we've been talking about, like the clock that went backwards and stuff that, that are still – and uh, and uh, Christmas Carol and Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court that are still basically fantasies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Yazik makes the distinction that, that Wells is really the first to popularize time travel as a convention of, of realistically grounded science fiction and to popularize the idea of the time machine as a piece of technology, specifically a vehicle that is deliberately designed to allow people to navigate time in the same way that people use regular vehicles to navigate space. And uh, I think she says, you know, the, the obvious comparison, if you look at this uh, – at its historical setting, this is in the 1890s. This would have been when we're seeing bicycles and early automobiles. So, so there's a lot of uh, vehicular consciousness at the time. Mm, yeah. But uh, I was wondering, okay, are there earlier examples of actual time machines, like science fiction time machines? Well, it depends on what you count. Like, do you count the clock that went backwards? Probably not really. That's just kind of a weird little fantasy object. Um, but I did find at least one thing that – looks pretty much like a conventional time machine that does just barely predate Wells. And this would be the 19th century Spanish author Enrique Gaspar's novel, El Anacronopete, uh, which was apparently published one year before Wells' story, The Chronic Argonauts. So this would have been in uh, 1887. And this novel describes a an inventor who who creates this device that uh, I think is basically a giant sealed metal box that is equipped with uh, huge pneumatic apparatuses that allow you to travel through time, including traveling backwards through time. And I haven't read this novel in full, but I was scanning through an English translation and I came across a, a part that I thought was so good uh, that I wanted to share it here because it's, it's where the uh, inventor is explaining his theory of time via the example of uh, sardines and canned peppers. Robert, are you ready <laughs> okay. for this? Let's have it. Okay, so the inventor says, It's common knowledge that to preserve sardines from Nantes or peppers from Calahora, we must remove the air from their tin cans. Wrong. We must remove the atmosphere and consequently the time. You see, the air is no more than a compound of nitrogen and oxygen, whereas the atmosphere, in addition to consisting of 80 parts nitrogen to 20 parts oxygen, also contains an amount of water vapor and carbonic acid, elements that are never left behind when forming a vacuum. But never mind the science. Let's speak to common sense. Imagine the world is a tin of red peppers from which we have not extracted the atmosphere. What happens when the can is sealed without this precaution? Time begins to exert its influence and carry out its work. First, a few molecules adhere to the sides of the container, agglomerating and solidifying, only to petrify with the passage of years and yield those substances in which we would find the mineral beginnings of primitive rock. We then note that the substance is covered with a kind of scum that is none other than rudimentary vegetation. And finally, microscopic organisms in the water vapor come to life, reproduce and develop like maggots in our tin of preserves, enriching it with the unending variety of the animal kingdom can you still doubt that the atmosphere is time this is one of those things that's like wrong but genius <laughs> yeah like this is it's it, he really thought long and hard uh, and well on this 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 thoroughly uh you know incorrect <laughs> mechanism for time 
Well, I like that it's it's sort of making the intuitive connection again between time and entropy, which we talked about mm-hmm. in our interview with Daniel, because it's saying like, okay, so things in a can, they don't rot. Mm-hmm. You, If you don't know any better, you might presume that's because the time has been removed from the can and it takes time for things to rot. Well, you know, it's coming back to like that idea of uh, of time as a, as a measure of change in the universe. And if in the can things are not changing, what does that say right. about about time? Uh, and, and in a way, it kind of serves as a nice, you know, it's it's ridiculous. And it takes a second to really think about what it's even trying to say with, with this atmosphere is time. But yeah. But in a way, it kind of serves as a nice. It kind of throws you off out of your 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 back to the future line of thinking, mm-hmm. where you think about time as this linear thing that you could conceivably move about in. Um, but uh, but this is an entirely different model. So I had a hard time finding. Uh, I was scrolling through the book, trying to find details on exactly how how the time travel itself works. Like when you're going backward, I couldn't find that part. But at least according to the wiki summary, what it says is that the machine flies backward through the atmosphere against the rotation of the Earth, and this is what allows time travel into the past. Uh, that would seem to fit with the other part about the atmosphere. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I'm not positive on this. So, but m- maybe one day I will just read this book in full because it it looks like it might be kind of bad, but pretty fun. Yeah, I mean it's, that that concept is pretty uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. I like it. Also, just while on I'm on the subject of uh, of El an- Anachronopete, I gotta say that I skipped ahead to the end of the story to see what happens, uh, and it uh, apparently involves the inventor going mad and accelerating the time machine all the way back to the beginning of time. <laughs> oh wow! Do you mind if I read this part too? Yeah, no, I want to know what he does there. What do you What do you do? Okay, so uh, the, I guess he's arguing with the other passengers in the in the time machine. And uh, he says, it's useless, continued the lunatic, laughing convulsively. Don't you see that our speed has increased fivefold? Nothing can stop us. I have destroyed the controls, and El Anachronopete runs headlong into the primordial white-hot essence. And then people cry out, horrors! Death awaits us in the chaos. Chaos! Look! And then it says... And indeed, through the porthole glowed a dim light that marked the beginning of the natural world and the end of formless emptiness. But continuing backward, chaos gradually but persistently increased, and soon not even thick port glass would be enough to hold back the flood of water, earth, and fire, all agitated in a suspension of air via periodic violent collisions that propelled the floating vehicle through that incandescent matter." The inalterability procedure that they'd all undergone had lost its potency. Asphyxia was overtaking the travelers. The walls could no longer stop the heat. And finally, the glass melted, letting forth a torrent of igneous substances with the boom of a hundred volcanoes. Oh, wow. And then there's like a like an eight-line ellipsis. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then uh, the inventor wakes up, having fallen asleep at a play, and, oh. and it was a dream, and I'm not sure oh. if I'm not sure if the entire novel was a dream or if only part of it leading up to that end point was a dream. I don't know. I'll have to go in and read the whole thing someday. I mean, it's almost like there there used to be a law that said, "Look, you can explore the concept of time travel all you like, provided everything takes place within the space of a dream or vision." Why are they always doing the dream? <laughs> I mean, why does it need to be a dream? Again, I guess it comes back to just the the basic understanding that the dream dreams are where time is weird, and yeah. 
therefore that's where time travel is going to happen. I mean, does the author think, wow, if people get to the end of this book and I don't say it was all a dream, they're going to think I'm nuts. So I, I've got to just say, well, that didn't actually happen. Or maybe they were thinking, look, they're going to actually invent time travel in like 10, 15 years top. And I don't want my work <laughs> to then to be out of date. <laughs> but if it's all within the context of a dream, you can't say I got it wrong. That's good. That's very good. So let's see. We've looked at various concepts of time travel here. Time travel by machine, time travel involving um, manipulation of the atmosphere, time travel by magical beast, time travel by drug, by head wound. Um, oh, man. There, there, there's so many ways to think about it. Time travel by cave, time travel by sleep. The cave is an interesting one, too, because, of course, the cave also makes one think of the tomb. Uh, Ooh, yeah. Time travel via, via death. And it, um, yeah, I guess it also reminds me of like all these various other stories of like characters venturing into realms beyond life, realms even beyond death, venturing into the underworld or mm. into, you know, or to purgatory or paradise. You know, there are all these fantastic stories about somebody traveling elsewhere, learning something, and then eventually coming back or trying to come back anyway. And, and ultimately, like time travel stories are of the same uh, mold, right? It's about somebody traveling into the fantastic realm and then returning. And that fantastic realm, it, it might be hell. It might be um, the 1950s. You know, it might be, uh, you know, seven years into the future. It might be all a dream. But yeah. let's hope it's not. But uh, re regarding the uh, El Anacronopete, uh, I do want to say while it looks like a great story and while it does appear to predate uh, Wells' uh, short story by one year, I think it's probably still fair to say that, that Wells uh, is probably the major popularizer of, of the idea of the time machine as technology in science fiction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wells', is, uh, Wells time machine is hard to beat. Like we said before on the show, like it's, it's a great book. It's still very readable, very enjoyable. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close this episode out, but obviously we'd love to continue to hear from everyone out there. Insights you have about time travel stories and myths and legends, traditions, and of course, uh, books and movies. What are some of your favorites? Write in, let us know, uh, you know, smartest time travel uh, or t time travel stories that are just a lot of fun, uh, even if you, you don't dare think about them too hard. Can you find earlier examples of, uh, of, of intentionally created vehicles for time travel? I, I want to know, does it go back earlier than 1887? Yeah, yeah. Or other time-traveling uh, magical creatures. Obviously, I want to hear about that. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed available wherever you get your podcasts. We have uh, artifact episodes on Wednesdays, core episodes of the show on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. And on Friday, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious matters and just focus in on a weird film. And we do occasionally cover time travel uh, films there. We did... Uh, we did what? It was a Trancers two, time after time, and was there another one? Uh, I don't know if you count Morosco with the sun going backward, but we'll we'll take it. We'll take okay. it. That's, that's three time travel movies, and I'm sure there will be more in the future. 
guess what's coming up next? Trancers 9. Uh, <laughs> Trancers 9. Uh, the atmosphere is time. Where they where they put Jack Death in a sardine can. <laughs> I would do I would do Trancers 3. Trancers 3 is pretty fun. Anyway, uh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 